Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Patient Convert podcast. Justin not here, and I have a special guest, Dr. Andrew Wilner, that is joining me today out of out of Knoxville, actually. And Dr. Wilner, why don't you introduce yourself? And I'm really excited about the topic we're talking about today, which is locums and finding work-life balance and using locums to do that, which you've actually written a book on. So introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about kind of your book and, and this passion project. Well, you mentioned the book, Justin, and it just so happens hey, there I you have go. a copy. Excellent. And I started working locums. My first locums job was 1982. Wow. And since then, I've worked off and on, and I'm a writer. So I, it's my fourth book. I was looking for something to write a book about. And it's like, you know, when you're an author, you want to write. It's like, well, what do I know about? And I realized, you know, I've had a lot of locums experiences and it was more and more in the news, locums, more doctors doing locums. It's a huge mm -hmm. growth area. So I wrote this nonfiction guidebook and I get a lot of feedback. I think it's an, we'll talk, but it, I think it's something very important for physicians to know about. Some people say, oh, Dr. Wendell, you're recommending locums. Well, not necessarily, but I think it's something that physicians should know is an option. My current day job is associate professor of neurology at the University of Tennessee, and I see patients, I teach residents and medical students. I actually have a pretty busy day in clinical medicine. Uh, we write a paper now and then, but I'm basically a clinician. I'm also board certified in internal medicine, and I did a fellowship in epilepsy, and I read a lot of EEGs. But today is a day off, so I have the pleasure of speaking with you. So talk to me a little bit about the book, This Passion Project. It's been a life journey. I mean, starting in the 80s with your first locums, why you think it is so important to look at as an option, especially when you you hear all of the time. I mean, you have people just talk, having podcasts specifically about physician burnout, work-life balance, getting fulfillment, and you have like really high unfortunate suicide rates in medicine right now. Why are you so passionate about this? And how can you find that work-life balance in, inside of locums? Right. So when I was a resident in internal medicine, there was no such thing as work-life balance, right? I mean, if yeah, you said to imagine. your superior, you know, I, I need to, you know, leave early today for then you were fired, you know, or or you <laughs> failed. Yeah, that was kind of line. a guarantee yep. to do badly. It was not an option. But my interest in work-life balance really had to do with a passion for writing. I mean, ever since I was 12 or 13 years old, I felt that somehow I was a writer and I've always strived to write nonfiction, poetry, fiction. I wrote a novel that's unpublished. I've written hundreds, if not thousands by now, medical news articles for Medscape wow. and other journals. Yeah. So this is something I wanted to do. And back in 1982, I did my internship. You know, I didn't have time to do the laundry, never mind write a book. And I had a book in my head and it was bothering me. So I, I kind of made a deal with myself. Okay. You're going to put a hundred percent of your energy into your internship. So you don't flunk out, you know, that's pretty intimidating. And then let's see if you can take quote a year off and then write your book. So that was my first locums experience. I worked part-time, right, for a doctor that's 36 hours a week, three 12-hour shifts in an ER. So I had four days to myself to write the book, and that's what I did. Wow. And so that's when I realized that locum tenants can be a work-life balance 
solution. So fast forward, you know, 40 years later, all of a sudden work-life balance is much more, first of all, there's more women in the workplace, you know, and women have a lot more juggling to do by the nature of our society. They tend to be the, the ones more involved with childcare, more involved with taking care of the house. Not saying it's right, but that's kind of the way most people live. And uh, work-life balance is a much higher priority, I think, for women. And now that women are more than 50% of the medical students, this has really become an important topic. And the other thing that's happened for a lot of reasons, and you could probably devote 10 podcasts, is why has the practice of medicine resulted in so much burnout, right? Mm -hmm. And let's just accept that as a given, because it is. And locums can be a way out. I'm personally very dismayed. I, I have a good friend, John Jerica, who's an expert in non-clinical careers for physicians, which is one way out. And I've worked with John many times and participated with him in seminar, and I've been on his podcast, and I think what he's doing is wonderful. But I'm saddened that physicians who trained for so many years, who went into medicine, you know, with their heart in it, all of a sudden, you know, are going to become coders or working for an insurance company. I mean, that just seems terrible. So my recommendation is look at locums first, which is a way to become a private contractor, self-employed, continue the clinical practice of medicine and pursue other interests, whether that's your family or a serious hobby or a combination. For me, for example, I worked locums for 10 years and did medical mission work in Southeast Asia. I did scuba diving in Southeast cool. Asia. I wrote hundreds of articles there mm -hmm. and I yeah, commuted back cool. and forth. I did the locums in the US and then I would go to Southeast Asia and stay there until I ran out of money. And then I would come back <laughs> and do locums again. And it worked very well for me. I was able to maintain my identity as a physician and clinician, which was very important to me. I had worked earlier as a medical journalist full-time, but I was no longer a clinician and that bothered me. So I went, Logan's was a way to go back into clinical medicine, but without the giant infrastructure that you have when you're an employed physician, and since 2016, more than 50% of physicians are now employed, which I think is sort of a watermark in the whole physician landscape. So if you're going to be employed, why not be self-employed and have the flexibility and freedom to work you know, where you want, when you want, how much you want, and really earn as much as you want, depending on how much you want to work. So it's a much more flexible scenario. Wow, that, that sounds fantastic. And then like you said, it opens the doors for whatever fills your cup, whether it's physician entrepreneurship or something else. Talk to me about, as you mentioned before, getting that first assignment. So if there's a physician out there listening to this, maybe get your book. I know you talked to it in there, but give us a little taste of if you're looking to make that transition, take some of your time back and kind of be, become a contractor so you can pursue other things. How do you get started in locums to, to land that first job? Yeah, great question. I would say, first of all, figure out why exactly you want to work locums. Do you need extra money and you're going to keep your job? And you can do that, right? You can work locums on top of your regular job. Are you done with your job and you want a part-time job that 
you can control. Do you want to travel? Is it your concept, you know, to see, you know, the 50 states, go to Anchorage, go to Hawaii? I mean, there are locum, Guam. I mean, there are locum jobs everywhere. I looked at a neurology job in Guam, but my wife wouldn't let me go. <laughs> so there's a lot of opportunities. So once, once you decide that, it's going to help you with your question, with, well, how do you get the job? In my case, when I worked in the ER way back when, it was because I had heard the residents were moonlighting at this particular ER, which was near where I did my internship. And uh, it was a very tiny ER. It was kind of manageable. And so I just went and applied. So it was word of mouth. And since then, I've worked at the Mayo Clinic as a locums via word of mouth. One of my buddies was the uh, chairman of neurology at the Mayo Clinic, and they needed some extra help. And so I just was able to sort of do it. It was a one-on-one -on -one and fill out all the forms. Now, the easier way to do it, if you, and so I would recommend keep your ear to the ground in whatever community you're in. Now, keep in mind, you may have a restrictive covenant that says you can't work within X number of miles from, so keep that in mind. But, you know, somebody may be on maternity leave. Somebody else, you know, the clinic's growing. They just opened up a whole new wing and they need somebody. They've recruited someone. Someone's hired. They're going to take that job, but they're not available for a year because of all the paperwork and licensing. But in the meantime, the hospital or the clinic wants to get going. So they can, and you're already there. So you've already got a license. All you got to do is hospital credentialing and you're, and you're good to go. So keep your ear to the ground, you know, let people know that this is what you're interested in. And then of course there are the staffing agencies and there is, and in my book, there's a list of them. There's more since I wrote the book because, you know, they are basically a middleman. They know who need, who has needs and they'll set you up. And the staffing agencies really provide, I would say, a terrific service because they hook you up, they pay you, they pay your transportation, they pay for your credentialing, they pay for your licensing, and they take responsibility. They separate you from the employer. So if there's an issue with the employer, then your issue is with the locums company who then deals with the employer. So they create space. But of course, they take a cut. Now, that may mean you earn less, but it may not. For example, in one case, I was working with an agency and I said, I worked for this hospital two years ago and they're offering me the same salary as two years ago. I want more. So the agency went to the hospital and asked for more and they got it. So even though I was paying the agency, I probably wouldn't have had the expertise or the will you know, to actually sort of negotiate with the hospital. So I let them do it. So I think I came out ahead, even though I had an agency. So it's not all that straightforward. The agencies you want to pick, there's an organization and I've interviewed them. Uh, this is my website there, the art, well, my podcast, The Art of Medicine with Dr. Andrew Wilner. And I've interviewed NALTO, the National Association of Locum Tenants Organizations. So that's the organization that staffing agencies join when they want to show that they're responsible and they're going to follow all the rules because there are horror stories. You know, it doesn't take much. It's like a real estate agent. Mm -hmm. You pass your license and you're an agent. Staffing agent, all you have to do is say, I'm a staffing agent, right? And you're a staffing agent. There's really, you know, it just makes, so there's a low threshold for entry, but there are, you know, well 
regarded firms that have been in the business for a long time. I'll mention Comp Health, for example. I've worked with them. Staff Care, I've worked with them. And then there are many, many others that are very good. And some are also niche. In other words, say you're a general surgeon. There are locums that help general surgeons, something like that. So you can hunt around for if there's a niche agency that's going to help you. But as soon as you contact them, you'll get lots of emails and phone calls. They could be a nuisance because they make money when you make money. So if you're not making money contracted with them, they're just spinning their wheels. Mm. So they want you to work. But, you know, that's a good marriage. You want to work too. That's why you contacted them in the first place. So I would say don't contact half a dozen. Find one or two. And the other key is, well, how good is the agency? I used real estate agent as a uh, analogy, and I've used that in my book also. I think the specific agent is much more important than the agency. You know, you can go with Century 21 or, you know, Realtors.com. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that agent that you're dealing with, that they understand you, that they're responsible, they're responsive. So talk to that person on the phone. And if they're not, you're not comfortable with them, find somebody else until somebody you can communicate with where, whom you're convinced has your best interests at heart. In other words, isn't just going to send you to Anchorage, Alaska because they're desperate for somebody and the agent is desperate for a paycheck, you know, unless it's a good scenario and you really want to go there, you know, you get there, you find out you're the only doctor within, you know, 500 miles and you're on call 24 seven and there's no support services and it's really cold. So, you know, you want to be prepared and the agent, agent can help you with that. Some really good points. And that was, you kind of hit on it a little bit now being in this for 40 years, and I'm sure you probably talk about it in depth in your book too. Is there anything they should be aware of, especially when they're going into their first couple assignments in terms of contract, contract negotiation, those types of things that are really good kind of notes, maybe hard lessons or good lessons that you've learned over the years. Like you kind of mentioned, even having the staffing company do some of that negotiation for you. Yeah, there's a few things. There's not a lot. The contract, you know, you'll sign like a six page contract. And then for each assignment, it's like one page. Basically, when are you going to show up? Mm -hmm. How much are you going to get paid? And how do you get out of it if it's a disaster? You know, you give notice, usually it's 30 days. So find out also is it's kind of an industry standard. When you get a contract, either party, you or the employer, a hospital or clinic, can terminate that contract up to 30 days before it starts. So I had a, it was August. I had a contract to start, you know, September 1. And exactly 30 days before my contract was supposed to start, I got an email from the staffing agency that the employer no longer needs you. Thank you very much. And that's it. It doesn't have to be substantiated by any valid reason. It's just, we don't need you anymore. They've changed their goals, blah, 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 some bureaucratic explanation, or they found somebody else. And you're without, you know, this was a six month assignment that was supposed to start, you know, and I'd already spent that money, right? So there you are. So yeah. always have a backup plan, call another agent the next Wait, day and mm-hmm. say, hey, turns out I'm free, you know, from October on, mm-hmm. have six months of money in the bank. That's important. 
because there is this possibility. Now, the other side of the coin is that if something better comes up, you can cancel also up to 30 days and say, you know, I don't really want to do that. I changed my mind. That's all there is to it. So there's a built-in instability. Malpractice should be provided. So make sure you get, there's a one-page malpractice sheet. Make sure you ask for that and take a look at it. Make sure it looks legit. You don't have to pay for that. There's no legit staffing agency that I know that doesn't pay for malpractice. So that should be taken care of. You may have to ask about housing. It's like, oh, you know, it depends usually on how long you're going to stay. If it's two weeks, they're going to put you in a hotel. Two months, they'll put you in a hotel. If it's eight months, they might give you an apartment or upgrade your hotel. You have to ask. You say, you know, can you provide something better? Will they provide a car? Do you need a car? You know, and one assignment I worked across the street from the hospital, they actually provided a car. I only drove it from the airport to the hotel (laughs) and back to the airport. I never actually used a car. So identify which benefits are included. So none of this is a surprise. The 24-hour number, if things go bad, you know, what do you do? There are horror stories. You know, I think the other thing is to be prepared that whatever situation you're going to, they need someone desperately, which is why they're hiring you. It means they can't hire a full-time person because they're in North Dakota or nobody wants to go there or there's a toxic work environment or they did hire somebody who can't start you know, for another year and I've been in that scenario. But be prepared for a lousy work experience. That's why you're going. But good news is it's temporary. <laughs> They're going to pay you either way right? You're paid by time, not by patient. So productivity, you can forget about RVUs. It's not an issue. You're not going to be on any committees. You're just going to show up, see patients, write your notes and go home. That's all you're expected to do. And that, and frankly, from my point of view, that's all you should do. Another good point. In other words, yeah. don't, don't, don't offer any yourself. suggestions yeah. on how yeah. things could be better. <laughs> and if you do a good job and you're pleasant, uh, it's happened to me and it's happened to other locums. They'll ask you to stay. They'll say, you know, Dr. Willer, we've been recruiting for somebody for a long time, but you're doing such a great job. Would you like to stay? So the caveat there is if you were placed there by, say, Comp Health. Comp Health has a contract with that hospital that if you go full time with that hospital, in other words, leaving Comp Health in the dust, yep. Comp Health will get a cut. Mm-hmm. of your salary yeah, normal headhunter staffing agency you know, and it's not unreasonable and usually that's about two years and mm-hmm. that actually happened to me where i got a private call direct from a hospital where i had worked before and it was within two years where i had worked under a agency so i called the agency and i said you know i think you guys should be in the loop here because i didn't want to do any you know get in trouble late down the road and sure enough the hospital had to go through that but I don't care. My job is to do my clinical work, write my notes, and then follow my outside passions. And, you know, they can deal with all the administrative stuff. So to, to switch gears a little bit, because I always like to bring it back around to marketing and what you just mentioned is the passion project side of things. One thing in particular I wanted to talk about, which I've, we've hit on over the last two or three years on the podcast, 
is kind of the personal branding. So you now that you can focus on these passion projects, and you obviously are, you've got the Art of Medicine, your podcast, which is in the background behind you. You got your website, you've written multiple books, including the one we're talking about today. I wanted to kind of talk about the personal brand building process. And if you are a physician, say you go the locums route, or you're just looking to kind of start building your legacy, start providing a conduit to reach patients or colleagues or whatever it is that is your passion project. There's marketing involved in terms of creating your website, building your brand. So I'd love to kind of hear what your journeys looked like, maybe some bumps in the road as you've gotten your podcast underway or your website, because I just think it's really important. It's such a hot topic now of I'm a physician and I'm here and I'm looking to get online, create content for whatever it is that I want to talk about. How do I get started and what are some of the things that I may run into along the way? Yeah, you're right. It's a really big topic. And I see all these articles for physicians. Oh, you need to be online. You know, you need to get out there. I think I would offer a lot of caution because like this video, after you edit out all the parts that aren't optimal, right, it's going to go and sit on YouTube for the rest of my life. So anything you do on social media, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, is permanent. And years ago, uh, I saw a news article where there was a, an ER near me, this back in uh, Rhode Island, and there was a very dedicated physician. She was an ER doc, and she used to post on Facebook interesting things that happened. And one day there was a, you know, a severe car crash. And she treated, and there were some miraculous survivals. And she posted, she was very careful not to put anybody's name or identify anyone. She's well aware of, you know, HIPAA, the rule that says you can't disclose patient information. Somebody somewhere, it was a small town, said that because it was a small town, people were able to identify who the victims were in the crash because there was only one big crash, you know, at that town, you know, that mm -hmm. week, which I guess hadn't really dawned on her. Well, as soon as she became aware that this was an issue, she took down the post and then promptly got fired from her job by the hospital for divulging patient information and censored by the uh, medical society, the licensing bureau. I was appalled. I mean, this, this woman did everything in good faith. She thought mm -hmm. these stories were kind of cool, yeah. that people should know about them. She took it down right away. She didn't have a malicious bone in her body. She lost her job, got censored, finally got another job in the state, you know, almost ruined her life just because she was communicating things that she thought were of kind of public interest on Facebook. So I think for many physicians, the internet and social media has the potential to harm which is far, far greater than the potential to help. So I've only recently become very in intentional about what I do on the internet. This, The Art of Medicine, grew out of my locums book. When I did the book, I thought, well, how can I let people know there's a book out there? So I thought, well, I'll put up a video, a five-minute summary of each chapter. So I did chapter one. I talked to myself for mm -hmm. five minutes and posted the video chapter two so there are 20 chapters up there that i put up that are free for people who are interested and are going to search locum tenants well then i ran out of chapters so i thought well i'll interview some locum tenants you know physicians 
And in my book, in fact, I interviewed 16 physicians and put their experience. So it's not just about my experiences. You know, I expanded it. So I interviewed some locum tenants physicians. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to interview an accountant who deals with locum tenants physicians. And so I found one. And then I said, you know, I've talked a lot about locums and it's great, but I want to expand. So it became the art of medicine. And now I talk to physicians who've written books, clergy who treat dying patients in the hospital. I talk to a woman who's deaf, who teaches deaf children. And there's a lot of issues there about whether they should use a device to be part of the hearing world or part of the deaf community. I've learned that there's a lot of very interesting people out there who write books or who are doing charity work, you know, that are not on the front page of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's my point. mission to kind of highlight their work. And it's been a lot of fun, almost 100 episodes now. I've been doing it for three and a half years. It's every two weeks. Now, in terms of branding, one of the things I do is I do it all myself. I choose the guests. I record the interview, I transcribe the interview, I edit the interview, and I post it when I want to post it, where I want to post it, and I filter the comments. So I control it. And, you know, that may be a psychiatric comment on my personality, (laughs) but it, it also is a way of maintaining my brand because my brand is, I like to think, is that of a quality clinician and a physician who's out there to to help. And uh, so that's my brand. So I try and control my brand. I share it on Twitter and LinkedIn, but I don't share, I don't do much of random posting and I don't get into much back and forth with people. If someone contact me and I'll mention my website, andrewwilner.com, that's kind of the funnel. And there you can leave me a message or contact me and I'll respond, you know, one-on-one. But I think social media is really a pitfall for physicians because physicians have to, they're judged at a higher standard, you know, whether they should be or not, they are by everyone. So I think if you're going to get into marketing, well, you might want a, someone to help you who's a specialist in that, who can create a little distance, who, if you say, you know, I want to put my little kid on the cover of the you know, our brochure, you know, on his skateboard, because I want to highlight, highlight, you know, elbow injuries or something, you might say, well, I don't know, let's talk about that, (laughs) you know, and see how it's perceived. And I think it's great if you're going to do that kind of thing that you have professional guidance, because the pitfalls are, are really huge. That's a really good point. What about the time it takes, especially you doing it all on your own? You have an extremely busy schedule. What have you found that works well for you? Like you said, kind of today's off, are you time blocking? How do you make sure that this stuff, your, some of your passion project stuff gets done intentionally? Right. So, you know, that's always a work in progress. I try and prioritize and I try and be very efficient. You know, I read those things, 10 ways to make your office, you know, more efficient, look at your mail once, you know, I do all of it. I was very disappointed when I read that article because, oh, I can be more efficient. I was already doing like all of those, (laughs) all those things. And I would say the main thing is I try and do everything once. When I do an interview, I do it once. I don't do a pre-interview. It's like two minutes, just like we did today. Okay, Dr. Willis, we're going to talk about. It's like, okay, any questions? All right, let's roll. Boom. I record it, 
the same day if I can. I review it, I make any edits, and I post it, and it's done. So I try and be very, very efficient with the things that I do. I'm always looking for new and interesting things to do, and that probably wastes a lot of time because you know most of the leads you follow go go nowhere. But you have to prioritize. I prioritized. I mean, my podcast has come out every two weeks without interruption for three and a half years. I think that's part of my branding. Yeah, that's really big. Most people fail at that. And that's when they fail at building a podcast. Right. So if you're a listener and for all your listeners out there, thank you very much for listening to the podcast or watching it on YouTube. You know that every two weeks there will be a new episode. I think that's something that that's a bond. And I think that's uh, branding. Now I'll mention, I have another YouTube channel that I started about 15 years ago, which is a passion of mine. And that's the underwater world. And I post short, curated, narrated, researched videos about cool things I've seen and photographed underwater. I also do that by myself and it's fun. Your kids can watch it too. But that does not have any schedule. I haven't been able to prioritize that. So whenever I get the time and I can put up an octopus or something cool, and then I do it. So, you know, everything can't get done. And before we wrap up, I'm always curious too, because everybody has a little bit different approach, especially you're doing it yourself. What is some of the in terms of producing your podcast and some of the things that you're doing, what is some of the tech stack that you're using, like to host your podcast, maybe edit the audio, that type of stuff? I always like to hear what people are using. Oh, okay. Well, it's evolved. About 15 years ago, I started with the underwater videos because I I love diving. I'm a Patty, a dive master. That's like my real hobby passion. If I could go diving today, I would. So I learned iMovie which came with my new Apple computer. So I've since graduated from iMovie to Final Cut Pro. So I use Zoom, which has the benefit, a lot of people don't realize this, Zoom allows you to record separate audio tracks from the person you're interviewing and yourself. We're doing it right now, actually. It makes it a lot easier to, you have a studio mix and you have each of your individual tracks. You know, because sometimes, you know, you make a noise or or the person's speaking softly and I'm speaking loudly and it doesn't come out nice. So you could fix that, you know, in 30 seconds with two tracks. So I use Final Cut Pro. I use Zoom. I use my website is Wix and I've, I created my website. I'm the one that they're the host, but I upload everything. And then I use Buzzsprout and I found, I think it's $12 and change every month. They let me put three hours a month of podcast material, which is more than I need. They distribute it to Apple and Spotify and, you know, everywhere. Uh, And I don't really have to do anything. You know, I just strip the audio out of my Final Cut Pro and post it. It takes about 10 minutes. And I'm very, very satisfied. I I don't get any kickback from recommending any of these people, but I would recommend them. I've had no problem with them. And of course, Final Cut is a lot of fun. You know, I probably know about 9% of all of the things it, so, it can do. And oh yeah, one of the reasons question. I use it is because I want to keep keep learning. You know, should I have two cameras? You know, I mean, you can do all kinds of fancy things with Final Cut. But that's, I would say the technical part is an easy, you know, it's tough at the beginning, but that's the easy part. I think the hard part is finding guests that you're interested in and that the listeners are interested in. And then, you know, I try very hard to let the guests 
talk, kind of the opposite of what we're doing here. You know, try and make, I tell them, I'm going to make you look as good as humanly possible. That That's my goal, you know, not to put them on the spot or embarrass them, give you an opportunity to promote that book you just slaved over for three years. You know, talk about it. Tell me what you did. I interviewed a guy, for example, who's a researcher who is almost solely responsible for the recommendation now that neonates, you know, newborns in respiratory distress do not get 100% oxygen. 100% oxygen was the obvious solution that was for many years. Oh, they can't breathe. Let's give them 100%. It turns out it's bad. And somehow as a young man, he's a pediatrician. He thought, you know, all that oxygen might be bad. There's free radicals. It could be toxic. Everybody thought this guy was crazy. And 30 years into this, he did studies, he did research, he was attacked, you know, for his, his beliefs. Turns out he was right. And now that's the recommendation. So somebody like that was nobody's ever heard of had, I mean, has saved literally hundreds of thousands of lives all over the world by his work. So he wrote his memoir, you know, I interviewed him. It's on my website. So I love to talk to people like that. That is very cool. Well, definitely make sure you go check out the Art of Medicine podcast. It's on, as you said, all of your major listening devices. And Dr. Wellner, thank you so much for coming on today. Before we jump off, tell everybody where they can find your book and purchase it and obviously listen to the podcast and connect with you as well. Sure. Well, the easiest way is my website, andrewwilner.com. Of course, the book is on Amazon and I love to hear from people and I always respond. So send me an email or you can leave a voicemail if you're interested in locums or if you think I might be helpful in one of your projects. I'm always interested. And thanks, Justin, Excellent. for this opportunity. This was really a lot of fun. For sure. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us today. And we'll make sure that we have all those links in the show notes. So if you go uh, to the website or go on any of the listening devices, you'll be able to find all of the links to Dr. Wilner's website and everything. And thank you again, Dr. Wilner, for joining us and, and talking to us about locums and kind of your journey today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's latest episode of the Patient Convert Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can sign up to receive the latest episode via email. Just check it out on my agency website or my personal website. And if you are looking for more amazing healthcare marketing information or just to engage, check us out at entropy.com. And for any of my amazing physician liaisons out there interested in growing their physician referrals or learning the strategies that it takes to build highly engaged physician referral networks. Check out my website, kellynot.com, where I have free webinars, free downloads, and of course, my online physician liaison training course, Physician Liaison University. And as always, I'm a huge believer in connecting, engaging, and supporting one another. And the best way we can do that is networking. And I always, always connect with you guys on social media. And one of my biggest social media platforms is LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter at Kelly Knott. And thank you guys again for listening to the Patient Convert Podcast with your host, Kelly Knott.